Heavenly Father, I want to just thank you uh, for this beautiful day that you've given to us. God, I want to thank you for every head that is in here that has come to worship you on your Sabbath day. God, as we open your word together and as we look at uh, a complex and challenging topic, please may your Holy Spirit be working on our hearts, convicting us of what we need to do right. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 18. Now, the book of Leviticus is a book of law. It's a book uh, of all the laws. Well, not all of them. A large collection of the laws that God gave to ancient Israel. And he gave these laws before the Israelites were going to enter into the promised land. And so essentially what God was doing, he was explaining to the Israelites how he wanted them to live once they possessed the promised land, what he expected of them now that he'd rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And Leviticus 18 is a a very important and yet very challenging chapter in these collections of laws that God gives, particularly challenging to the culture that we find ourselves in today. So let's read the first five verses together. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the land, and according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, You shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So this chapter begins with God giving a very uh, very stern warning to the people of Israel to not mimic the, the cultural practices of Egypt and Canaan. So Egypt is where they'd come from, and Canaan is where they're going toward. And God says, I don't want you to mimic the culture and the habits and the practices of these two nations you're going to interact with. And God knew this because a culture's laws and policies and practices are dictated by their spirituality and values. And we're going to refine this idea a bit more uh, this morning. But to begin with, we'll say it like this. Our culture's laws, policies, and practices are dictated by their spirituality and values. So I'll give you an example. If a culture has uh, gods or deities that they worship who uh, are corrupt, are selfish, greedy, murderous, conniving, then the, the culture will see these character traits embodied in their gods that they worship as things of value. So uh, if the gods are are conniving and deceptive, then that is seen as uh, something to aspire towards. And of course, those values are then codified in laws. Laws are really just uh, a legal representation of what a culture values, isn't it? We value this and therefore we put it into law. And God knew that the gods that were worshipped in Egypt and Canaan, they were corrupt, they were selfish, they were greedy. And so he wanted the people of Israel to avoid worshipping these gods, knowing that it would result in a culture which was corrupt, selfish, and greedy. Instead, God says, I want you to keep my judgments and ordinances, keep my statutes, because the God of the Bible is loving. And God wanted his people to reflect that love. He wanted them to uphold justice by caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee. He wanted them to show humility and gratitude through their sacrifices and offerings. He wanted them to be known throughout all the nations for their mercy and forgiveness, for their sense of rightness and justice. And so God warns the people not to mimic the other cultures or worship their gods because worshiping corrupt gods leads to an oppressive, destructive, and bloody nation, rather than the kingdom of justice and mercy and love, which God had envisioned not just for his people, but for the entire world. So we might phrase it as this, 
this is a simplified version of this idea. God knew that worship of corrupt idols creates a corrupt society. The idols are corrupt. The values of the people are corrupt. The society is corrupt. And so rather than that, God wanted them to worship a loving God because worship of a loving God creates a loving society. The values of the society are then based on this loving God. And then the laws, the policies of that, of that nation reflect those values, reflect the way that God wanted his people to live. But what were these practices that God wanted his people to avoid? So God says, avoid the practices and uh, all the, uh, the spiritual traditions that these people do. What were they specifically? Well, let's continue reading together in verse 6, Leviticus 18, 6. God says, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not cover. It is your father's nakedness. And we'll just pause there. What we see here is God making a, a prohibition against incestuous relationships. Um, immoral uh, sexual relationships within family members. And God gives a very long list. It's actually very disappointing that God has to give such a long list. He says, don't do it with your sister, with your brother, uh, your mother, father-in-law, your uncle. Your... He goes through every possible family relation. And you think to yourself, does God really have to be this specific? But he sadly does. In Genesis alone, we have six recorded accounts of incestuous relationships, just in the book of Genesis. So it's clear God had to be very specific with the people of Israel not to do this thing. He did not want them to practice uh, this. Let's continue reading in verse 20. Verse 20. We get another practice. It says, Moreover, you shall not lie with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. So this is adultery. Taking that sexual relationship outside of the covenant of marriage that God had intended. So God says, don't practice adultery like the other nations do. Then have a look at verses 22 and 23. This is where we get real dicey when it comes to how our culture, uh, where our culture's values are today. Leviticus 18.22, God says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination, nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it, it is perversion. So God places a, a prohibition on two additional items. He places a prohibition on homosexuality and bestiality. Now, of course, uh, Adultery, we understand why this is forbidden by God, because it ruins and breaks down relationships. And marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the love God has for his people. And so taking that love outside of the covenant uh, reflects the wrong message. Homosexuality, uh, God describes as being against the original design that he gave for humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. And I don't think I have to elaborate uh, to any great extent as to why God would see bestiality as something uh, immoral and something to be avoided. But notice we skipped one verse. We read verse 20, we read verses 22, 23. We skipped verse 21. Let's have a look at what verse 21 has to say. Chapter 18, verse 21. You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. What does this mean? To pass a child through the fire to Molech. This is a description of what the ancient Canaanites used to do. This was their religious ritual of child sacrifice. And so uh, what would happen is, so their, their uh, God was Molech, and they would sacrifice children to Molech. Now, this seems a bit out of place, right? So far, this chapter has all about, been about um, how to be sexually moral, 
the, the heading in my Bible here, and yours might be similar, is laws of sexual morality. So it seems a bit unusual to have a verse about child sacrifice sandwiched in between these ones uh, that are about sexual morality. This seems a bit out of place. But I believe God purposefully put this verse here for a very good reason. Remember, we described that a culture will create policies and laws that reflect the values of the gods that they worship. And here's how I'm going to summarize it uh, here. Spirituality influences morality. Morality influences policy. Spirituality influences morality. So um, in the case of the Canaanites, their spirituality was focused on the gods such as Baal and Asherah and Molech. And these gods were cruel, they were vindictive, they were bloodthirsty, and perhaps most importantly, they were very promiscuous. And so the spirituality of the people, their worship of these corrupt gods, led led them to have a morality which was equally corrupt. A a morality that uh, saw things such as child sacrifice as completely fine. And so their sense of morality, the values that they held, created the laws and policies of the land of Canaan, laws and policies which made the the sacrifice of children completely legally fine. This was a complete uh, moral good for the Canaanites. Another large part of the pagan religious practices was visiting a temple and visiting a, a temple prostitute. So you can see how this promiscuity and uh, these violations of what God intended uh, for natural human relationships are violated when uh, a nation's morality and spirituality are completely bent out of shape from what God originally wanted. So what the Canaanites, the Canaanites believed that if they wanted, uh, pardon me, prosperity and fertility for the land and for the nation, child sacrifices were required. And so uh, a, a young infant would be placed into the hands of an idol, the idol Molech, and a fire would be lit underneath this idol. Eventually, the arms of the idol would drop the child into the flames, and the Canaanites, they would have people playing drums in order, in order to drown out the sound of the child screaming. These are just monstrous, terrible things. And when we look at, the, when we look at what they were practicing, we think to ourselves, God's been so merciful that to even let them exist for this long. Yeah, Israel's going to go in and kick out the Canaanites, basically. Uh, but it, even I'm shocked, I think. God, you are so merciful. I would have gotten rid of these people ages ago. God was w- hoping Canaan would turn from their, their evil ways, but they didn't. And let's read verse 24 to 29. God specifically makes mention of what he's going to do with Canaan because of these practices. Verse 24, he says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all of these, the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. The land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land is going to vomit out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations either of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who are before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So God, he's quite explicit. And I'm glad that God is so forthright in what he thinks about this, because these are some of the most Uh, evil practices that a human can do. So I'm glad that God is putting his foot down and he's being firm and saying, I do not approve of this. I'm glad God is being um, so forthright in what he thinks. And so God, he ultimately says that these practices have defiled the very land of Canaan. Or we might uh, use another expression, they've polluted the land. And because the land is so polluted and defiled... He has to kick Canaan out. The outcome of these forbidden practices is basically getting exiled out of the land. And so God warns Israel. He says, look, you're going to go in. Canaan's getting kicked out. You're going in. 
But if you do these same practices as Canaan, don't think that you won't uh, suffer a similar fate. God is going to keep Israel accountable as well. It's not just Canaan. Israel will also be accountable for ensuring that they don't do these terrible practices either. So God was quite clear and with good reason that Israel was not to mimic the surrounding cultures because he knew that spirituality impacts morality and morality impacts policy. And God wanted to create a culture in which he would not have to be concerned about the death of innocent young children. As we read Leviticus 18, though, we might think to ourselves, well, this is written thousands and thousands of years ago. What could possibly be the application here? When we look at the world around us, are we really seeing anything here that we read of in Leviticus 18? Surely we're not seeing practices such as child sacrifice in our culture anymore, do we? This morning, I'd like to propose to you that the sad reality of our culture is that we are not only still practicing child sacrifice, but we're doing it on a scale that Canaan couldn't even imagine. Instead of taking place inside a, a temple or, and being conducted by pagan priests, we perform, we perform it in private medical clinics done by doctors and surgeons. And we don't call it sacrifice anymore. We've given a different, more clinical name to it. We call it by the name of abortion. And I want to just clarify uh, what we should clarify then what abortion is. But before we go any further, I do want to say um, that the, the topic of abortion that we'll be discussing for the remainder of uh, our message this morning, it is incredibly uh, personal. It's incredibly challenging and confronting and at times uh, quite graphic. And so uh, I don't know the, the experiences of everyone in the room here. Uh, perhaps this is a topic that is personally quite challenging or sensitive to you. Um, and uh, if, if it is, uh, I do want to let you know you're not obligated to stick around and listen to uh, this uh, potentially distressing uh, message. I don't want to put anyone in any kind of distress um, or, or feeling of guilt or shame or anything like that. Uh, and I also want to, I also want to reiterate that I'm going to be speaking quite frankly about the topic, very much in the same way that the, the ancient prophets would call out the evils that they saw in society. But I also want to uh, remind you that when it comes to people who are perhaps personally wrestling or struggling with difficult decisions like this, uh, if you were to approach me, you wouldn't get the prophet speaking from the pulpit today. You'd get the pastor who is wanting to counsel, encourage, and support however possible. So this morning we're calling out uh, the general evils that we see in our culture, not trying to uh, harm or make uh, any uh, accusations or condemnations of individual people. Individual people that are wrestling with this topic, we want to come alongside and encourage and support. But at the same time, we need to be able to call out uh, this evil practice that we see in our culture. So perhaps we should be a bit more clear about this topic of uh, abortion. An abortion refers to the taking of the life of an infant inside the mother's womb before it is born. And there are a variety of ways that a, a, an abortion can be performed. So for example, if a mother is in her first trimester, this is the first uh, approximately 12 to 13 weeks, your, the baby will look a bit like this. The average baby, 12 to 13 weeks, will look like this. And by this point, they have a beating heart. Their heart is beating, pumping blood through their body. Their fingerprints have already developed. They've got their unique fingerprints. And you can clearly see it's a very tiny little human. Uh, you can make out very plainly, you know, this isn't, um, I don't know, a dog or a cat or whatever animal. This is clearly uh, a small child, a small human being that is being grown 
and developed here. Now for a, an infant of this age, <coughs> pardon me, uh, at an infant of this age, there's usually one specific method used. Now I'm going to show just a, an illustration of how it is done and I do want to give uh, a, a warning. It may be, you may find it a bit confronting. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to hold it against anyone if they wish to just close their eyes for a few moments. It may be confronting. In order to dispose of a child of 12 to 13 weeks, a small vacuum tube is inserted into the mother's womb that sucks the limbs and the head of the body into the tube bit by bit. I'll show briefly the illustration. Again, don't feel obligated to look. It is rather distressing. <clears throat> bit by bit, the head, the limbs, the body will be taken out from the mother's womb simply by using just a, a very forceful suction while the baby is still alive while a baby is still alive. It is distressing. I hope, I, I hope you're feeling what I'm feeling, which is just complete sadness. It's, it's terrible, isn't it? Anyway, we'll move on from that. I don't want to keep that up for too long. This is uh, an infant from 12 to 24 weeks. And I will say, thankfully, Thankfully, not too many late-term abortions uh, happen around the world. So this is in the third trimester. Thankfully, there are not too many in the third. So we'll just focus on the first and second trimester. So by the second trimester, this is 12 to 24 weeks, the baby's developed more. You can see it's uh, resembling, it's got more, much more features of what a human will have. So by now, it's opening its eyes for the first time. The infant is actually able to hear things as well. So they're, they're, they're using their ears. They've got a digestive system that's working. And by now you can tell if it's a boy or a girl um, by 12 to 24 weeks. Now again, I'll throw up one more image and feel free to turn away for a few seconds. So to dispose of a child this age, the problem is the baby's quite large. Uh, the baby's too large, in fact, to get out uh, in one piece. And so a forceps clamp is put into the womb and the surgeon will use the forceps to grab the limbs and the torso of the baby one by one, taking them out. So you'll see here, that's the forceps clamps used to take, uh, take the baby apart limb by limb. The real trouble is that the, the skull is much too large. And so the forceps are used to break the skull into pieces as well. In a way, I'm sorry to have to share that with you. Uh, and as I was researching and watching this sort of stuff, it nearly brought me to tears, you know. Um, it is very distressing. But again, we look at practices like this. We look at the practices of the ancient Canaanites. How, how is our culture really any different from what ancient Canaan was doing to their children. As I said, we're doing it on a more colossal scale than Canaan could even imagine. Here are just a few brief statistics from the World Health Organization. 73 million abortions take place worldwide each year. So that's three times the population of Australia on an annual basis. Three times the population of Australia annually dies from an abortion. This is a, a crazy statistic. Six out of 10 unintended pregnancies and three out of 10 of all pregnancies result in an abortion today around the world. Three out of 10 women who get pregnant, whether intended or unintended, will have an abortion. It's estimated that a fourth to a fifth of the current generation is not alive due to having been aborted. We're miss there's a missing generation. There's we're missing a, an entire huge fraction of our human population because they simply just don't exist. Now, this, this is um, perhaps very distressing because then we, we enter a debate of, well, why, why, are, why are so many mothers feeling the need to have an abortion? 
And a lot of the time, abortion is defended in cases of uh, rape or incest. They go, well, you have to abort the baby then. But the, the problem with that is only 1% of abortions are a result of rape and only 0.5% are a result of incest. This is an incredibly small minority of people who get this because of these circumstances. And yet we want to use these very rare and extreme cases to make a general rule. So what, what really are the reasons that most uh, abortions take place? Well, a, a survey was done and uh, where women were asked why they chose. These were, this was the feedback. 48% said that they were not interested in being a single mother or having relationship problems. 73% said that they couldn't afford a baby. And 74 said having a baby would dramatically change my life. You'll notice these are primarily reasons of convenience. Having a baby is going to interfere with the way I do things. Perhaps uh, a mother wants to travel in their younger years and a baby would stifle that dream. Or perhaps a woman wants to continue her career path rather than have to worry about a child. At the 2020 Golden Globe Awards, uh, actress Michelle Williams in her acceptance speech for one of her awards expressed how thankful she was that she was able to have an abortion so she could pursue her acting career. And she was applauded by the entire audience. Thanking, she actually, she actually did thank God for that, mind you, which is very backwards. So the ancient Canaanites, they sacrificed their children for prosperity of crops. Today, we largely sacrifice ours for convenience, personal convenience. Why is it, though, that so many women are placed in this difficult position where they have to make this choice? Why are there so many unintended pregnancies in our culture today? Well, remember, we said spirituality impacts morality, morality impacts policy. So let's trace that logic. Our culture is becoming increasingly secular, very de-Christianized. But it wasn't always that case. We used to uh, the West used to place uh, their morality and policy from a Christian worldview. And in that Christian worldview, we understood that every single human being is made in the image of God. Here's a little uh, activity that I've done with many groups before, where I ask people, what's the difference between you and an animal? What makes you different from your pet dog or your pet cat? And these are some of the most popular answers I get. They go, well, I've got opposable thumbs, or... I'm self-aware, or I have a sense of morality, I, I can communicate, or I've got the capacity to, to build things. Now, what I do then is take people through each of these and go, well, lots of animals have opposable thumbs, so it's not that. Uh, lots of animals have language and communication, so it's not that. You ever seen a, a, a beaver or an ant or basically any animal build things? And even animals seem to have some sense of morality. You know, if you tell off a dog, you know, he puts his ears down and puts his tail behind his legs. He knows when he's in trouble. He knows when he's done the wrong thing. So even animals seem to have a very limited scope of morality, some of them. So let's come to self-awareness. Then what I do is I ask people, what if I were to take away one of these things from you? Would you cease to be a human being? So if I lopped off your thumbs, are you still a human being? Yes. If I were, if you, let's say, got knocked on the head and forgot how to speak English, would you still be a human being? Yes. If uh, you couldn't build a Lego set, are you still a human being? Yes. So I, I go through each of these things and show none of these are required for you to be a human being. What about a sense of morality? Does a newborn infant have a sense of morality? No, but they're still a human being. Self-awareness. Let's say someone gets in a, a car accident, is stuck in a coma. They've, they've lost their sense of self-awareness. But are they still a human being? Yes. And so the idea is that what makes us a human being and what makes us different from animals is that we are uniquely made in the image of God. This is something that we only, uh, we have an exclusive uh, unique claim to. And because we're made in the image of God, 
every single human being is deserving of equal treatment, fairness, dignity, respect. There's no room for discrimination or mistreatment, enslavement, treating people unjustly. Because every person has inherent value and worth to their life. Every person has inherent value because they are made in God's image. We read this verse in our Sabbath school lesson. Genesis 9.6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood must be shed, for in the image of God he made man. This is a direct commandment where God says, No human being has the right to take the life of another human being. And he gives a reason why. Because every human being is made in the image of God. And because of that fact, me, you, no one has the right to take the life of another person. In fact, there's a, a very interesting passage in Exodus 21, if you want to briefly turn with me there. Exodus 21, and uh, my subheading here is Laws Concerning Violence. This is a very obscure law that you may not have heard of before, but it goes to show a lot about how God places such value on the life of, of our young, our, our children, our infants, and our unborn. Exodus 21, verse 21, says, um, no, sorry, we'll start in verse 22. If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that's she's pregnant, so that she gives birth prematurely and no harm follows, the man will surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So for making the baby born pre, be born prematurely and putting the baby's life at risk, there's a, a small penalty that must be given, and it's decided by the husband. But notice this, but if any harm does follow, then you will give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Or in other words, whatever damage is done to the child, that must be then uh, done to the offender. So what does that really say? God places the exact same value on this prematurely born child that he does on a fully grown adult. God says, look, the life of this child is of equal value to that of this fully grown adult. So if any harm comes to the child, there must be an equal, uh, equal justice paid to the offender. So this was the biblical worldview that we had in our culture for a very long time, where every person was believed to be made in God's image, worthy of value, dignity, and respect. But our culture has drifted away from that. Primarily during uh, the Enlightenment period, many began to question the Bible, and one of the biggest movers and shakers was Charles Darwin. Darwin's theory of evolution was a great replacement for the creation story. And in this creation story of evolution, humanity, they're not divinely created by God. They're not made in God's image. In fact, they're just animals. There's no difference between me, my dog, a cat, a chimp, uh, whatever animal. All of us uh, are just processes of evolution and we're just simply more advanced animals. And so many people began to jump onto that, one of which uh, you would know the name of Sigmund Freud. He suggested, well, if man is no different from the animals, then why is he constraining himself with all these rules and regulations? Why do we have this idea uh, of a marriage covenant? Why can't we make uh, sexual relationships free for anyone, free of constraints? And here we see a new spirituality, a new worldview is forming. Over time, our, our culture has definitely fallen into this trap of uh, believing that we're all simply animals. There's nothing inherently valuable to us. And therefore, if we're just animals, why shouldn't we do whatever we feel like? And so our culture, it's developed this, this craving for adultery. And uh, one of the slogans of the 60s in the sexual revolution was free sex, being able to do it however you want, uh, regardless of the rules that God had imposed. But the problem with free sex is that it most often leads to pregnancies. And so a new solution was given in abortion. Abortion was a way to not, not only ensure free sex, but sex free of consequence. 
now the consequences of a person's actions did not have to be uh, a concern. So the spirituality of this new worldview is man is an animal. The morality of this new uh, the the morality of this new worldview is that man should just follow his animal instincts, since there is no creation design. And so the policy created based on that is that inconvenient humans can be legally disposed of to create a consequence-free sex. Now, of course, our culture doesn't like to say in such plain terms that that's what they're doing. And so they've come up with some quite clever ways to justify this practice. It's a very simple wordplay where they don't refer to the baby in the womb as a baby. They will only ever refer to it as a fetus. Now, technically, that's a, a, a true statement. But what they do is say that the fetus does not count as a person. They say, yes, they're a human being, but they're not a person. People have legal and moral rights and a right to life, but a human being doesn't. And so this is uh, what is referred to as personhood theory. (coughs) So they'll say, up here we've got a person, that's you and me. We have moral and legal standing. But a human being or the human body uh, has, uh, sorry, that should at the bottom say, has no moral, legal, moral and legal standing. And they add on these extra criteria. If you want to count as a human being, you have to meet, or as a person rather, you have to meet these extra criteria. Uh, you have to be self-aware. You have to be, be able to live viably outside the womb, able to sustain itself independently, have a sense of identity, have preferences and desires. So these arbitrary rules are placed on young infants and they say, well, unless you have these things, you don't count as a person. You're a human being, but you don't count as a person. Now, do any of these kind of sound familiar or does this sound at all familiar? What the, the exercise I did with friends, uh, with people was the difference between you and animals, right? And by the end, I said, there's no additional criteria that can be added to you that would make you less human. You're human because you're made in the image of God. This is the exact reverse of that experiment I did, where now we are adding criteria and saying, if you actually want to be a person, we have to, you have to meet all these additional criteria. It's not enough that you're made in the image of God. You have to meet these additional criteria. But the problem with these criteria is they're not consistent. So for example, able to sustain itself independently well, most primary school age children can't live independently. A baby <laughs> exactly. No, it doesn't know how to cook, doesn't know how to clean, can't change its nappies. So does that mean that uh, children aren't considered people in primary school? You know, Or what about uh, a sense of identity? Teenagers, their big crisis is finding out their identity. Do teenagers not count as people? What about uh, self-awareness? So let's go back to you get knocked in the head and you go into a coma. Once you slip into the coma, are you no longer a person? According to personhood theory, that's exactly the case. And so these arbitrary reasons, these additional criteria are made up to say, well, yeah, the baby is a a human, but they're not a person. Because if they were a person, they would meet all of these additional standards. Science fiction author Philip K. Dick, he, he wrote a, a very short story after a US decision, Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade uh, was a court decision that made abortion legal in America on a federal level. Um, and he wrote this short story called The Pre-Persons. It was set in the future And in his short story, the U.S. government has decided that abortion is legal until the soul enters the body. Now, when do you decide something like that? Well, in his story, the U.S. government decides that the soul enters a person at the moment they develop the capacity to perform simple algebra. That's pretty silly, isn't it? (laughs) And in the story, uh, the average age is about 12. And it's uh, it's a very confronting read because... There, uh, in the story, there are children who are about 9, 10, or 11 who know they don't understand algebra and will stay hidden from public view to ensure that they don't get taken away, taken off. 
But it's a very clever story because it shows how arbitrary these made-up rules are. You can make up any rule to say, well, you don't count as a person until you do X sort of thing. Whether it's having a sense of identity, whether it's able to sustain yourself independently, or whether it's a, something as simple as doing algebra. You can make up all sorts of added rules to say, well, now you count as a person. But we know that that's not how uh, God works. What's sad is this was the exact same logic used in many atrocities around the world. The Nazis saw no moral problem in killing the Jews because they were human beings, but they weren't really people. If they were people, then they would be more like us Germans. Or what about slave owners in America? They justified slavery by saying, well, these African people, they're human, I guess, but they're not really people, are they? They weren't, they're not as intelligent and smart as us. If they were really people, they would, whatever, insert whatever you want. If every generation comes up with this idea of finding ways to dehumanize those people that they don't like, people that are inconvenient to them, and they add these extra rules. Well, if you want to be a real person, you've got to meet this standard of ours. But nothing can be added or subtracted from a human that would make them more or less of a person. A human is made in the image of God with no added criteria needed at all. So to conclude, I just want to take you through a few common objections you'll hear when talking about this subject. I think it's so important that as Christians we have a good way to defend our faith, and particularly on such uh, an important topic as this. So we'll just lightning round go quickly through a few objections and give some answers to equip you to talk about this topic. Objection one, you often hear, well, what about instances of incest or rape? We already talked about this. It's only 1.5% of the total, and we don't use rare cases to create a standard practice. That's not how we do things. Objection two, what if the child is born with a disability? You'll hear this a lot. Or if we know the child's going to be born with Down syndrome, isn't it more merciful to not let them live? It's a bit backwards, isn't it? We cannot know their future, so we have no right to take their life. You've got no idea what their quality of life is going to be like, whether it'll be great or whether it'll be terrible. You don't know. But the solution to future suffering is not inflicting a person with the worst possible suffering in the present. What we should do is try to find solutions that will help the person who will suffer, not inflict suffering on the person. Objection three, well, what about a woman's right to the body slash her reproductive rights? You'll hear this a lot of the time. And very simply, the, the baby is not the woman's body. It's its own human being. It's its own person. And we have to respect the baby's right to his or her body as well. We have to think of the rights of that human being. Also, a woman uses her reproductive right when she engages in sex, not when she decides to abort her baby. So you often hear abortion is a reproductive right, but it's not. That reproductive right was used when that person decided to select a partner to have relations with. That's when they use that right, not later uh, during abortion. Object objection four, the fetus is not alive. That doesn't count, it's not alive. Well, the baby in the womb is growing and developing and therefore alive. Non-living things don't grow. The, the fetus, or the baby, I should say, is alive. Sometimes you'll hear, well, the fetus is not a person. We talked about that as well. Every human being is made in God's image, classifies as a person. No additional criteria needs to be met. Objection six, it's just a clump of cells. You'll hear this a lot of the time. It's just a clump of cells. Well, so are you and I. <laughs> We're just bigger clumps of cells. We're just clumps of cells too. But that doesn't justify us killing each other. Neither does it justify killing the, the child or the baby. We're all just clumps of cells, if you want to say it like that. So, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for our world? Well, I believe that there is. You may have heard in the news this week that in America, the Supreme Court is working to have the Roe v. Wade decision removed. So Roe v. Wade... Uh, is the decision that makes abortion legal on a federal, on a national scale in America. And the Supreme Court this week is actually moving to have that, uh, have that removed, making abortion illegal in many parts of America. 
So there is hope. There is hope for our world. But I also want to challenge you that you may be able to actually make some positive change as well in this very important topic and issue. There are many incredible charities that are working to end abortion here in Australia. One such organization is Right to Life, which uses donations for political lobbying, uh, for advertising and spreading information like what we've shared this morning here. Uh, outside of Australia, but I think is a, such a worthwhile uh, charity to donate to is preborn.org. Preborn.org. What it does is uses donations to give mothers ultrasounds, free ultrasounds, completely covered and paid. And they found that the majority of women who have that ultrasound will not go through with an abortion because they're able to see their child and they realize that it's a, it's a living, breathing uh, human being. And so for, I think it's about $20, covers one free ultrasound and is possibly one life uh, that can be saved by you. I'd also like to encourage us that as a church, we can do something together as well. Uh, perhaps a, a small donation here and there from one or two of us to a charity like this, it'll make a difference to someone. But we could make a bigger difference if we came together uh, and if we banded together and created uh, a, a sizable donation, if we were to do something like a fundraising event together, we could very literally save lives. It might be one, it might be 10, it might be 50, I'm not sure. But putting together a small fundraising event to raise some money to go towards a charity like this can very literally save a young child from death and give a mother the blessing of a baby. We also have the opportunity to make our voices heard by those who are making the decisions, the policies, the policies and laws. And one of the biggest events in Australia that uh, has really been pushing to try and put an end to abortion in Australia is the March for Life in Sydney that takes place in Sydney every year, the March for Life. And it's just a, a, a gathering so that our politicians can see that we are truly concerned about what's happening in our country. We really care about uh, these mothers and their children. And so I know uh, maybe not all of us are uh, as able-bodied as we used to, but for those who can, imagine if Canamble Church was able to represent itself and take a stand against abortion and joined in such a march to do what God has called us to. Remember, God called his people to show righteousness and justice to the oppressed and the vulnerable, to reflect his love and mercy. What if Canamble Church were to be able to represent God in such a way and make sure that we give our voices to ensuring that such an evil can be stopped in our culture? I'm going to just quickly ask Sarvel to pass out a little uh, card and uh, a pen. And on it, you'll see that three, three options, which if you are interested in, I encourage you to fill out. The first says that you would be interested in giving a donation uh, to one such charity as this. Uh, of course, you know, that's, that's a, a private decision you make. And I'm just getting you there to tick that box uh, to make a personal commitment to yourself. That's all that is. The second is, if you would be interested in doing a fundraising event here at Canamble, which we can then take all the donations and give to one of these charities, make a, a lump sum, big donation, if you'd be interested in helping with that, I encourage you to tick that second box. If you would like, as a church, for us to put an event and create a, a big donation together. And thirdly, that third box is if you would like to participate in the March for Life. So the March for Life is on September 25th. And I know it's in Sydney, which is a bit uh, away from here, but I think, so I'm gonna give you just a few minutes to do that and I'll just wrap up uh, our sermon. I, I understand uh, this has been a bit of a longer sermon than I usually give, uh, but I felt very impacted, particularly in light of the Roe v. Wade discussions going around uh, this week to really give uh, as thorough uh, a description of this topic as possible and be able to equip you as best as possible. So to conclude, every single human being 
is made in the image of God. Every person is of inherent worth and value, deserving of dignity and respect because they are an image bearer of God. No one has the right to take the life of another person, including the life of an unborn child. And we as followers of God, we're called to ensure that God's law is reflected in our spirituality, our morality, and our policy. We have a calling to spread a message that not only transforms lives, but saves lives forever. We have a calling to ensure that those who are oppressed and vulnerable in our society are defended by those who can. And whether it's because of circumstances beyond their control, whether it's simply a mistake, we need to show not only sympathy and care to these children, but also to the mothers who are struggling in these circumstances. Jesus, throughout all of his ministry, showed love and mercy and compassion to to people who were prostitutes, people who were constantly violating uh, laws of sexual immorality. But he knew that by showing love and mercy to them, he could show them God. How can we not do the same as what Jesus did for us? How can we not show that same love and mercy to mothers who perhaps have made a mistake, but are equally deserving of God's grace? I want to read for you just one last verse. Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. David says this, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. If today's message could be summarized in a few words, that would be it. That each one of us are wonderfully and fearfully made by God himself. Let's work together to change our culture, to save lives of those who are being knitted together in their, woman, in their mother's womb by the hand of God himself.